Pirates. Lord, Lord, there's yet still time. No compassion in this world of mine. Lord, Lord, there's yet still time. But not much mercy in this world of mine. I'm 21 and I got involved. I had time. They put me away on a narcotics charge. They had no time. To Vancouver after six months in jail I had time But my family had left And the house was up for sale They had no time Lord, Lord, there's yet still time No compassion in this world of mine Lord, Lord, there's yet still time not much mercy in the world of mine Went to see a sweet girl on Dunbar Heights I had time But her father slammed the front door Didn't even say goodnight He had no time Over Granville Bridge to Manti To fill out some forms I had time The employer shook his head Said come back when you performed no time. Lord, Lord, this yet still time. No compassion in this world of mine. Lord, Lord, this yet still time. Not much mercy in this world of mine. So I tried the preacher in his panel then. I had time. I thought he'd tell me of Christ, but he lectured me on hell. He had no time. Sunday went to the church, high, steepled and old. I had time. They shook my hand but didn't care about my soul. They had no time. Lord, Lord, there's yet still time. No compassion in this world of mine. Lord, Lord, there's yet still time. Not much mercy in this world of mine. I returned to the hippie house on Chemical Row. I had time. I thought I'd reason with them, but they gave me a smoke. They had no time. So I'm back in O'Color on the same old charge. I'm doing time. But on that judgment day, when you all look my way, there'll be no time. Lord, Lord, there's yet still time No compassion in this world of mine Lord, Lord, there's yet still time But not much mercy in this world of mine Lord, Lord, there's yet still time No compassion in this world of mine Lord, Lord, there's yet still time Not much mercy in this world of mine and you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, the new creation with yet still time. 
Thank you, Chris and Alan McInnes from Alienated in Vancouver, the blog alienatedinvancouver.com, for giving me a copy of the New Creations CD. I got a copy of the New Creations CD at a showing of two movies that Jello Biafra is associated with, The Widower and Terminal City Ricochet. And Chris was there, and Alan was there, and they approached me and gave me a copy of this rare recording. Only about 100 were pressed in the 60s of the New Creations LP. And that was yet still time by the New Creation. And Chris also handed a copy to Jello Biafra, and Jello responded, hey Chris, you don't happen to have the original vinyl. No, I don't think Chris has the original vinyl. Too many copies of it, at least. He probably has at least one for himself because they now go for $1,750. I love the 50 added on there. The new creation, yet still time. A band I found out about at a Jello Biafra movie screening festival just about a week ago. Speaking of Jello Biafra, today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Jello Biafra from 1989, an interview with Jello Biafra from 1991, and an interview with Jello Biafra from 2010, i.e., I just did a brand new interview with Jello Biafra. In fact, I've interviewed Jello 11 times, so you will be not hearing interviews with Jello from 1995, 1997, 2000, 2002, 2004, twice, 2005, 2005 with the Melvins, or 2006. For those, you'll have to go to nardwar.com. However, there will be some more Jello flavored excitement on the Nardwar to Human Survey radio show to enhance my brand new interview with Jello Biafra because right now in the studio joining me well who do we have right now hello are you there hello uh someone's here is this loud enough yes sounds good who are you uh, uh my name is Bill Mullen Bill Mullen the guy who is responsible for introducing me indirectly to Jello Biafra who are you Bill and why are you here and why did I see you on Sunday night well, I was also at the showing of the two movies. Um, I basically wrote a movie a long, long time ago called Ricochet. Uh, that was about early 1986. That eventually became Terminal City Ricochet. Uh, there was, <clears throat> by the time it was done, there was five writers involved. So I blame the other four for everything that's wrong with it. Um, and yeah. what is Terminal City Ricochet for the people that don't know? What is Terminal City Ricochet? Well, that's it. And I how does it affect Jello Biafra's life? With all this coming up, you know, I'm. I'm I don't live in the past, but I do have I, I do write stuff down, and I actually went digging through a box full of old notebooks, and I discovered this thing dated January seventeenth, nineteen eighty six. Uh, I got the date wrong the first time. I said nineteen eighty five, but anyway, um, this is just before I sat down and wrote the treatment, which eventually became the screenplay. So this was the original idea. Uh, for the movie Terminal, the City, Terminal Ricochet, City Ricochet, which has now been re-released. Re-released on DVD after 10 years or 20 years or whatever, 15 years in, in limbo. Uh, gone, forgotten by everyone but those who remembered. Re-released on Alternative Tentacles Records, Jell-O's yes. record label. Good on, good on Jell-O, by the way. Th that was a great show at the rickshaw with the uh, Guantanamo School of Medicine. If you weren't there and you're an old Dead, dead Kennedys fan, you missed something because... To me, they were actually better than the Dead Kennedys the last time I saw them. So, there you go. So, uh, exactly, what is the tagline for Terminal City Ricochet? Tell us go. more, okay. Bill Mullen. You're one of the writers. 
It's an adventure set in a crumbling, arguably dead civilization, certainly stricken. It concerns one young man in particular, Alex, a frustrated, this is in, in uh, question mark, artist, painter, whatever, who's considering a rock and roll career even though he doesn't know if he can sing and he knows he can't play an instrument. And anyway, before anything of this can happen, he is sucked rather against his will into circumstances which eventually, through myriad complications and bad luck, leave him branded as not just a criminal, but a cop, a multi-killer, a terrorist, possibly international. Suffice it to say, the standing order for the local police force is to shoot him and his accomplices on sight. So that, that's the basics. And then it sort of goes through a lot of stuff and it concludes, and this is the way the original concluded, not the way the movie concludes, a ransom drop in which they, the kidnappers, which, of which Alex and his friends are the kidnappers, will be utterly humiliated by the bad guys, who, who, who would be led by Jello in his character of Bruce. But they will be saved rather miraculously at the last moment by a crashing piece of space junk, which of course was all the rage in those days because the space shuttle had just blown up. So, uh, yes, we were very timely. And turned into a song by Jello called Falling Space Junk, Hold the Anchovies. Which he made with uh, Victoria, the, pr really the greatest rock and roll band to ever come out of Canada, No Means No. Victoria, British Columbia, Canada's No Means No. So what exactly would you say the difference is between The Widower, which is another movie that Jello shot in Vancouver, and Terminal City Ricochet? The Widower, its tagline, its short tagline was, Natural Born Killers Meets on Golden Pond. <laughs> What was Terminal City Ricochet, Bill? And who else was in Terminal City Ricochet? A bit of background on the movie shooting in Vancouver. Uh, it, it shot in Vancouver in 1989. Um, Gene, Gene Kaniski of wrestling fame was in it. Um, Joey Shithead was in it, uh, playing, a, playing a corrupt cop. Uh, Peter Breck was in it, who used to be in the Big Valley, you know, on, on TV. Which was quite a score to get him. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, yeah, he was... Uh, that's a long story, but uh, th there's lots of long stories involved in Ricochet. Um, it was a uh, it, it was a strange str strange time. There there, there, there was a lot of uh, Jello. Sp uh, Jello spoke about it very well at the opening the, the other night. He basically explained what it got down to was there was five different writers, all with different things they were trying to accomplish, all essentially wrestling each other over a screenplay and a director who didn't really care. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, it's uh, it's still out there. It's in the culture. And actually, I quite enjoyed it the other night, what I saw of it. That was, was better than I remembered it. So. Was the movie your idea? Cause yeah, yeah, no. I, generally, the the flow of the movie is my idea. The the, the, the difference is, is uh, back in the 1980s, I, I never called myself a punk. You know, I, I went to all the gigs and stuff like that, but uh, I was a little more psychedelic. I was more into everything and... I remember we saw, uh, me and a few friends saw Repo Man, and I remember walking out of that thinking, oh, hell, I could do better than that. And so, but that was the motivation to sit down and write Ricochet, which, it's worth noting, is not better than Repo Man, but uh, I was a young man, and, uh, and, and these things happen. But, um, so yeah, so I wrote this story that, 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 was, that was weirder, a little more influenced by uh, things like, I don't know, Bunuel and just surrealism in general, which eventually fell into the hands of people like Ken Lester and uh, John Conti, the producer, and Jello, and Jello didn't really write any of it, but he had an influence. And it, and it became more punk rock, which was far more relevant being from Vancouver, which that was kind of the key music of the time then. Some of the credits tell a bit of the story, and Jello also mentioned that the movie was a bit hard to understand. He said that's what happens when you get like five idealistic screenwriters fighting. It becomes a bit hard to understand. Sure, it's hard to understand. 
And it did have interesting credits. Like I noticed, that kind of makes under people understand a bit more what it's about. In the credits, you have crusade children, bodybuilders, skateboarders. I love that. In the credit, does that kind of sum up the movie? Crusade <laughs> children, bodybuilders, and skateboarders. Is that the tagline? That's a, that, I think it's better than the one on the box, which is basically said, when real life is a television show, you can't change the channel. I thought that was kind of uh, a little lame for me. I thought it, it, it was sort of, it was too focused on, on one idea that, that certain people thought they could use to sell it. And of course, they didn't sell it very well, or else we wouldn't be talking about it as some rare cult item right now. Uh, I think a lot of people learned a lot making that movie. Uh, some people learned that they can't make movies. Other people learned that there's, that there's more important things in life than hanging around trying to make movies for five years. That, that was me. Um, not that I've stopped doing it. I just decided to have a life in the meantime as well. How much of the movie came true? This is another thing that Jello talks <laughs> a lot about. Uh, the environment is actually still better now than it was then. Um... I don't think we've had... I mean, in the movie, Falling Space Junk is, is, is about as common as, as buses driving by. So, yeah, they're sort of... Uh, that's, that's another difference. In, um, in my screenplay, it was never explained where it was coming from. It was, just, it was just a world where you had to watch it where you're going because random chunks of molten metal were hurtling down out of the sky and uh, causing strange things to happen. Hence, Falling Space Junk, hold the... Anchovies, I believe. Hold, hold, hold on. on, hold on. Just oh, as in space junk still exists. Here we go. Falling space junk. Whole, and actually, if anybody's interested in a copy of the movie, phone right now and you can come out to CITR and pick up your free DVD of Terminal City Ricochet. So that's falling space junk. Hold the anchovies. Okay. We'll I think probably that's signaling me that what you have to do Anchovies. is give out the phone number for uh, uh. CITR. 604 822 247. 604 UBC CITR. Actually, were there any technical glicks on the movie at all? Oh, absolutely not. Everything went perfectly. Falling anchovies. Professionals. Falling anchovies saved the space junk. How about that? No means no. Okay, sorry. Just, just like the movie is kind of riddled with confusion, what was wrong? What did we pick there that by was mistake? the first song. I think we want track, uh, not the first one. That was Behind the Smile. Okay, again, that's 604-822-247-UBC-CITR. If you'd like to win a DVD of Terminal City Ricochet, you have to come out to CITR to pick it up. But here we go again. Take three in the proud tradition of movies. Falling Space Junk, hold the... Anchovies.
And you're still listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. What did we just hear right there? I was uh, following Space Junk, hold the anchovies, Jello Biafra with uh, No Means No. One of the cool things that happened with the movie was um, while it was being shot, you had Jello in town and various... Uh, bands traveling through so he actually to record songs for the album he did a session at profile studios with cecil english for uh with uh, no means no for that song he also did a session with doa for a song called that's progress and both of them managed to find time around the same time to actually do entire albums together uh, i can't remember the names of them but there's uh, there's just some really great music in there it's kind of i'm sure you'd find it at the alternative tentacles website which is AlternativeTentacles.com And coming up on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, a brand new interview and some old interviews with Jello Biafra, who of course starred in Terminal City Ricochet, or did he star in Terminal City Ricochet? A bit more about the cast. Whose idea was it to cast Jello Biafra, Bill Mullen, the writer of Terminal City Ricochet? I think that has to go to, um, it probably goes to Ken Lester, who, who was the manager of DOA at the time. Uh, I remember there was this th- there was this great DOA show in late 1986. It was uh, some some big fundraiser, and someone had the idea that it was going to be like the Gathering of the Tribes concert in Vancouver. So they had Randy Bachman was playing and all these old school rockers and 5440 start opened it up, and then DOA came on and played. And it was one of those evenings where you realize that DOA probably was the greatest band in the world at that point because they just blew everyone collectively away. And I remember walking out of the show and saying to the producer of the movie. John, we got to get involved with these guys. I mean, that's and he got in touch with Ken Lester and blah blah blah. Next, that the the whole next chapters that ultimately allowed the movie to get made happened, which was uh, it just it just the screenplay started to go around. It met other people. Fresh ideas came in. Strange things happened. Who was John Conti? John was a UBC guy. He was involved. He'd put on concerts at the Sub Ballroom in the early '80s, and uh, we just we just connected slowly over various things. I, I I'd made some some rock videos. I did stuff for people like Art Bergman and Go for Three and Brilliant Orange and stuff like that. And uh, John and I got to talking. We actually I helped him with a couple of documentary films, and at some point. Um, you know, I, I, I pitched on the notion of doing a low-budget, uh, crazy movie that was sort of a dystopic view of the, the future, basically set in Vancouver as, as if it was Nicaragua or something. Who are the other behind-the-scenes people? For instance, Phil Savath. I noticed that he did Beverly Hills 90210 later on in his life. <laughs> Phil was uh, a ringer. He was a, he was a hired gun. He was a, a guy that Telefilm Canada would, would give money to to improve our story. And actually, he was a story editor. I, I, it, it was first just me writing, then, then Phil came in to kind of guide me along. And, uh, and his line to me always was that it never got any better than that, you know, as, as a work of art. But, uh, but at some point, and, and I was originally going to be the director, but we, we just couldn't raise the money. And at some point, uh, money was available to let Phil do a version of the screenplay, which was the first time it became a little bit more of a comic book, a little, little, little broader, as opposed to the way I had it, which was a little more realistic, although surreal is probably a better way to put it. 
and and then um, once we had the Phil Sabbath screenplay, we got more money, and that's where the actual and that's and other people got involved in turning that into something that was a little more uh, punk rock, for for lack of a better term. The comic book angle was it your idea in the movie to have the newspaper gun? What can you tell the people, Bill Mullen, about the newspaper gun in Terminal City Ricochet? It's like a gun shooting newspaper. No, nah, that that was not my idea. Uh, although the the lead character was always a paper boy. He was a, a grown up paper boy. That was like the best job you could get in town at that point like you know like you're sort of 23 years old and, and if you had a job as a paper boy you were you, you were rocking you had a future with the uh with the corporation that ran everything which was glicor or glimmer as i what was it called it was called uh Gilcor is what it was called. And then it turned to Glicker because apparently there was a Gilcor out there already i need to mention one other person which is uh long-time listeners to citr know him as jerome broadway but al thurgood he helped me with the original story. It, it was it, we we sat down and uh, you know we drank tea and uh, threw ideas around, and uh, came up with the basic skeleton of the story that that eventually became the thing that it that became something else that became something else that we're now talking about. Terminal City Ricochet on an Ardwater Human Serviette Radio Show with Bill Mullen coming up shortly. A brand new and some old interviews with Jello Biafra. For Americans, what is Telefilm Canada, because some Americans sometimes think Telefilm Canada, the Canadian government paid to bring Jello Biafra, a punk rocker, to shoot a movie in Canada. How does all that work? Uh, it's a communist organization that uh, basically takes money from hardworking um, capitalists and, and gives it to weirdo artists and let them do weird things. Uh, apparently, that's uh, what I hear. Um, it's. There was all kinds of weird stuff going on in Canada at that point. I mean, it's kind of a fluke that we got this movie made. One of the things was, was Telefilm hadn't given enough move money to the West Coast. And they were doing everything they could to not make this movie, but at a certain point, it was like, uh, what else have we got on the desk? And here was the script that, that wouldn't go away. And this is where John Conti deserves a lot of credit, because John just kept, you know, he just, he just wouldn't back down. And at some point, I mean, the I've, I've heard all, all kinds of contentious things about how much the movie actually cost. I'm pretty sure we had more than $2 million, so, uh, which is, I didn't get my share, but, you know, I'm, I'm past that now. And, and I would have spent it on stuff I didn't need anyway. However, it benefited a lot of people. For instance, me, I met Jello Biafra through Terminal City Ricochet. I was not in the movie, me, Nardwari, Human Serviette. However, Jello was at CITR Radio. How did all that come together? What was Jello doing on CITR? How did I end up meeting Jello Biafra, Bill Mullen? I believe it was while the movie was being shot and we were doing some promotion. And someone got in there. We got to get Jello out to CITR. And, and someone must have tipped you off because we, you know, we, we did this interview in which he was in a really bad mood that day. He, was quite, he was, wasn't very nice to the interviewer and, uh, you know, sort of whatever. He was probably being treated badly on the set or something. And anyway, the interview wrapped up. And, and then the door opened. The door let's open. play the clip right now, okay, actually. Here, we go. here is my first encounter captured on tape live with Jello Biafra from 1989 as he's just done an interview on CITR, the college radio station here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And he's walking into the hall and I am there to meet Jello Biafra, me, Nardwater Human Serviette, for the first time, 1989. Thank you, Terminal City Ricochet. <laughs> Mr. Biafra, here's a question. Real fast. Okay, what is the difference between an American and a Canadian? That's for you to decide. And what right does the media have to pry into things? Well, you're prying right now. So is, that, is, that a, is it allowed? Is that allowed? I'm allowing it now against my better judgment because the question is awfully <laughs> 
But the thing is, wouldn't it be What's nice that? to suck up to nice little cub reporters and lick them? What is your uh, in regards to that? People phoning you, hounding you, trying to track you down. How do you deal with this since you have well, elevated in society? Kind of like this, I say farewell to you, sir. <laughs> And little did he know that I would interview him another 10 more times and hopefully even more than that. So that was my encounter. Thank you, Bill Mullen, for linking me up with Jello Biafra all those years ago. Do you remember that at all? Because you're actually in the video of that. If people go to YouTube and type in Nardwar Jello Biafra, they will actually see that clip. They will see you in the background, Bill, I think, wearing your sweatpants. Yeah, because I, I wore sweatpants for about a decade there. So, yeah, that was... Uh, uh, that was... Um, I have vague memories of it. I mean, I remember being up here, and I remember you being out there, and I remember being this this moment where I think if you look at the videotape, you, you, you can see me smiling because it's like that's the smile of someone who knows, oh, Jello's about to encounter something he's not ready for, and that's pretty much what happens there. So that's one of my favorite memories, almost scenes from Terminal City Ricochet, but of the actual movie, my favorite scene is Peter Breck taking like this bloodbath. I just love this bloodbath he takes. What is your favorite scene, and can you tell the listeners a bit more about some of your favorite scenes from Terminal City Ricochet, a movie starring Peter Breck and Jello Biafra, recently reissued on AlternativeTentacles.com. Oh, favorite scenes? That's tough. The bloodbath scene, that was, uh, that was definitely one that I wrote, uh, although it wasn't in the original screenplay. It was... Uh, it came after the notion that uh, there, there's a scene where the mayor, Ross Gl Gl Glimmer, is, uh, who's corrupt. He's basically George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and every, any number of other uh, relevant and irrelevant assholes all kind of jammed into the same person. Uh, he's giving a speech, and, the space, and a bunch of space junk comes tumbling down, which happens to be a sewage dump. So he's smelling so, you know, it, it's, it's such a toxically bad smell that... Everyone knows about, you know, you, you get sprayed with a skunk, you need uh, to have a bath with uh, tomato juice. So uh, I thought, well, it would look pretty cool to have a guy in a, in a bathtub full of blood. And so that's basically the, the scene that then happened. In terms of favorites, uh, that's, a, that's a really hard one. I, I would say that my favorites probably didn't make the movie because, because, because I'm a writer and I'm bitter in that regard, you know, because they, they shouldn't have changed anything. Were you on set the entire time or did you leave production of the movie at all, Bill? Oh, I was on set very little of the time. I was very tired of it. Um, I, I wrote the thing in 1986, and, the, and it was three years of, of as has been discussed, uh, you know, sh shall we say, uh, leg-wrestling writers. And yeah, at some point, lo and behold, it was actually getting made. And I've, I'd, I'd been on film sets before. They're, they're cold, boring, and um, not a lot happens. So uh, I, I was theoretically off writing my next big thing which never got made, but that's another story. Did you cast Peter Breck? Who cast Peter Breck? He was my idea, uh, because we were, this was back in the early days when I was actually going to direct, and we were going through casting, and we were non-union, so a lot of the people that were showing up were sort of young neophyte actors, and a whole bunch of them had taken courses with this guy from Hollywood named Peter Breck. And, I, and having just seen Ricochet, where Harry Dean Stanton, or uh, Repo Man, where Harry Dean Stanton, who was this old Hollywood hand who disappeared for many years into alcoholism and drugs, comes back and does this dynamite performance, I thought, well, what the f Like, I wonder if Peter Breck would be into being in our movie. And that was, uh, that's sort of how that started. Was it hard to get him into the bloodbath? How did you convince Peter Breck to be part of it? He was living in Vancouver, right? Yeah, he was living in Vancouver, running, a little, uh, running an acting school. Um... I don't know, you know. I wasn't on set that day. You know, and it probably would have been a close set anyway because it's a bathtub. And What did he think of the movie in general, though? He dug it. He, he uh, you know, he, he's a guy that had issues with Hollywood. 
there's a reason why he was up here, and I, I think, which meant he had issues with the with the whole power structure of the world, which in the 1980s was just a it was a nasty place to be. People complain about things now. Uh, it was there were so many fewer choices back then, so you were either with with the program or against it. And Peter was was a cool guy. He was against it. He was with us. Jello really loved Peter Breck in Shock Corridor. Have you seen that? What's that like? Shock Corridor, 1963, Peter Breck. Yeah, that was actually shown at Cannes. Uh, I've seen parts of it. haven't seen the whole thing. It's, uh, there's a great story where it was made by Sam Fuller, who, B-movie genius, and always managed to get this really intense realism in his movies. And there's a, there's a scene at the end where it's about a reporter who tries to infiltrate, uh, I guess, a corrupt mental institution. And I guess the director, Sam Fuller, made Peter Breck, who was a young man at the time, he kept him awake for about 48 hours and then put him on a set and said, okay, you're going to improvise this scene. There's like 15 doors. Only one of them is unlocked, and you've got to figure out which one it is. And, of course, the secret was they were all locked. So here's a guy that's been up for 48 hours, didn't know what his scene was going to be, and he basically went insane on camera. So you got Peter Breck for Terminal City Ricochet. You got Jello by Afro. It was you that got Jello, right? It was like your idea to have Jello. No, no, I, no. I'm, I'm giving that one to uh, I'm giving that one to Ken Lester because 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 he was connected. He was because at that point, alternative Ken Lester, was, the manager yeah, of DOA, uh, they were putting out DOA records. Who it's worth noting, you know, there's there's lots of weird stories about DOA, but I remember Ken Lester saying there's only one label of all the labels that DOA ever put out records with that that ever paid them a penny, and that was alternative tentacles like Jello. Ran a, you know, he's a, a straight dealer, that guy. Who else did you have in mind for the various parts? Like you got Gene Kaninsky, the amazing wrestler from Canada. Rest in peace. What can you tell people about Gene Kaninsky? And was that your idea? Uh, I, think, I think I was part of that, thinking that that would be a cool idea because there was some kind of connection that had already happened between Gene Kaninsky and DOA. I can't remember what it was. I think maybe he showed up in one of their videos or something. So it was... Again, that was all part and parcel of getting DOA involved. And there's another guy that was really cool. Like, Gene Kaniski was a guy that, you know... He, the world's strongest man! He'd taken a lot of hits to the head, but he could see which way the wind was blowing, and he was not in favor. Who did you want for the various parts? Uh, the one guy that... Well, you know, there's a... God, the guy that I originally had cast for the, le for the young lead was a guy named Pete Mustapich, and he was great, you know? And, and it just... The timing was too bad for him. In other words, we had a movie that we thought we were going to get made in basically uh, early 1987, and the financing fell through, and by the time we got around to it again two years later, P Peter, unfortunately, was outside the picture. The, the other guy that I had in mind for the part that Jello eventually got was J.B. Shane, who... Uh, famous kind of fringe DJ and video show host in Vancouver who has just the best deep voice. And that's another point worth making. All of the radio and TV voiceovers that happened in the movie were all recorded here at CITR. So, Which is great. Yeah, so you hear people like, like Bill Baker and... Dave Campbell. Dave Campbell and, uh, God, uh, I'd have to listen to it again. To, yeah, but, but the voices are there. A few years later, Jello came to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I had to talk to him again. And this is what happened. Again on the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show, we're talking about Terminal City Ricochet, recently re-released on Alternative Tentacles Records. Alternative Tentacles lead singer star Jello Biafra stars in the movie Terminal City Ricochet. And I'm playing a couple interviews that I've done with Jello Biafra over the years. Coming up, a brand new interview with Jello Biafra. And also speaking here to Bill Mullen, one of the writers of Terminal City Ricochet, who introduced me to Jello many years ago in 89. So in 91, when Jello came back to Vancouver, British Columbia County, he comes here a lot, doesn't he? 
He apparently, he, he claims that Vancouver has been very good to him his entire career. He came back to the sub building and I had to go up to Jello Biafra and talk to him. And Jello Biafra was holding a pen. He was doing an hey, autograph sign. There's a good anecdote there. Uh, John Conti, uh, the producer of the movie, was still hanging out with Jello at that point. He was, at that point, he had kind of uh, connected with some of the Vancouver Canucks and was trying to get their money for movie investments. And that particular talk that Jello gave, in which he said he's glad the space shuttle blew up and all that, he actually brought, uh, what's his name, um, oh, the brother of uh, Lyndon along, you know. So there was this uh, interesting moment where this jock guy from, this completely straight-edge guy gets, gets exposed to Jello. And thankfully, Jello did not do the song Jock O'Rama that night because it was spoken word. Here's my second encounter with Jello Biafra from 1991. Hey, Mr. Biafra, can we ask you a question? Oh my God, it's Nardwar with a camera. And I've got a marker too. I was, I was wondering, Jello, do the American? <laughs> He's speechless. I, Nardwar is speechless, ever, and he has to go to work tomorrow. Is there um? Is Jello Biafra, is there, do the American people have the government that they deserve? Um, I would say the, they have the government that some people deserve, but the ones who deserve it are inflicting it on us and not obeying their own laws. Are you a Democrat or an anti-fascist? Um, I would say some of both. Are you in the same vein as speakers or artists such as, and you mentioned their names this evening, the Rollins, the McKay, and the Zappa? Are you in that league of these Gentlemen, Mr. Jello Biafra, are you like in the league of these artists? Oh, I would say as much as you're in the league of Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> and finally, I was wondering, looking at your belt buckle right here, I have charted the progress of this star belt buckle throughout the years. What is the true story behind this belt buckle, Jello Biafra? Well, I got it when I was 15 years old because I thought it looked like Jim Dandy's buckle of black oak. Arkansas. And you've kept wearing it since? Yep. This has dead Kennedy spit on it. Yep. Probably has some of yours, too. And, and, this, and this is the, f thank you, and here's a real final, final, we have a nice Canadian present for you, Jello Biafra, a lucky chestnut for Jello Biafra. Oh, thank you. Looks like a chocolate-covered uh, tumor. <laughs> and where's my smuggler's 10-inch? In the bag. Oh, right over here. It's all there. Oh, Jello, say goodbye. Goodbye. You're going to be sure to put me on the same compilation with the next Cesar and the Romans video, aren't you? Sur le 
nos amis sont tous nos amis et moi. Splish splash, je ressortis du bain pour chahuter avec tous les copains. J'étais une partie surprise, plus en pleine crise, ma place est reprise, tant pis pour ma chemise. And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. You just heard right there Caesar and Say Romans from 1965, Quebec, Canada, with Splish Splash and Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And before that, an interview with Jello Biafra by me, Nardwar, the Human Serviette from 1991. And we still, still have in the studio right now, who are you? Please explain, who are you? Uh, Bill Mullen, I'm the original writer of Terminal City Ricochet, along with Al Thurgood. We did the original story, I wrote the original screenplay, and then other people got involved. And if it wasn't for Terminal City Ricochet, there would be no interview coming up shortly, a brand new interview that I did with Jello Biafra. Thank you, Bill, for getting Jello to Vancouver hey, in a, 1989. There's a question that needs to be asked to you, because he, he refers to, and I have a marker in that in that last interview. That, that, that had re repercussions, because I was there. Basically, Jello had a Sharpie, and uh, he started writing on John's face, basically. Uh, Nardwar's face. Uh, sorry, well, yeah, and, and Nardwar's as well. And Nardwar's as well. There's yeah, he completely drew all over my face with one of those Sharpies. All the time that questions were being asked, Jello was fighting back. And again, you can check that out on YouTube as well. And However, it was really hard to get off the Sharpie. How long did that take? Well, what happened was it actually lasted for about a week. Now, I got all the black of the Sharpie off, but the soap I used caused a rash on my face, and that's where the Evaporator's song I Got a Rash came from. So actually, it helped inspire a song. The rash actually helped inspire a song. Now, why did I get rash from the soap? Because remember, here at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, at the university, the washrooms had that weird soap at that time. <laughs> you know that weird soap where it was kind of like little bits of soap? Well, wh how would you describe it? Just, like, it wasn't like liquid. It was like hard soap. It was like bits of soap. So when I rubbed it on my face to get rid of the black marker, it totally gave me a huge rash. So, yes, I wore that interview for, I guess, Industrial grade, I think. Industrial grade is how I would refer to that. It did really, though. Industrial grade, yes. And a lot of space junk did fall down. Falling space junk. Still hold, falling. Still hold up there. the anchovies. One of the important things from the movie, Terminal City Ricochet. So the movie was shot in Vancouver. What were the other locations? Like, there was a log cabin. Where was that? There was a lot of Expo 86 stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff shot on the old Expo site, which was actually not that old then. Uh, I don't know where that cabin was. I'm assuming it was uh, in, uh, on the North Shore somewhere or up the valley, you know. Um. But that added to the feel, the Expo 86 stuff, yeah. didn't it? Of kind of like a oh, desolate yeah. junkyard. Well you, that was such a strange and weird and, and to me, toxic time in Vancouver. Uh, people have fond memories, but people have fond memories of Ronald Reagan, you know. So, uh, you know, beware of those who tell you the past was fun. And you're holding the DVD right now, Bill Mullen, writer of Terminal City Ricochet. On the back, there's a whole bunch of stills, but none of them of Jello Biafra, in fact. In fact, 
Nowhere on this DVD are there any pictures of Jello Baffer except his, his words of his letters of his name written up in the front. What exactly was Jello's role? Well, he actually, this, this uh, DVD is, is his project. He decided it was going to happen. He bankrolled it. He sat down and went through the movie and actually chose the stills that are here. So, uh, and there's actually some stills on, on one of the extras on the DVD inside. Um, Jello's performance was quite interesting, wasn't it? Very over the top. Yeah, well, I, one of the key things is he got no direction. It was, it was, it was not the best situation. And the, the director, Zale Dalen, who I quite, I, I, I quite got along with, he was kind of fed up by the time we got around to shooting. So he was just kind of, he kind of, I think the word in the, in the, that you say, he, he kind of mailed it in. So here's Jello, who's expecting to get directed. He's, you know, he certainly knew how to emote, but he did not know how to control a performance. And he was just kind of on his own in front of the cameras. So you get this, this in, intense energy coming out of him. He plays a rather psychotic um, uh, sort of undercover cop, uh, secret policeman, up to all kinds of nefarious uh, manipulations of, of the media and ongoing events. Yeah, Blackwater would be a good reference to uh, the kind of operation that he ran. I think they called it SPEW, which was the Special, po special Police Enforcement Unit. He was the head of Spew. Bill Mullen, on the back of this DVD, Terminal City Ricochet, there are many stills, as I mentioned. Could you explain what's going on in some of these? Okay, well, I'm going to hold this up to the microphone so everyone can hear it. Uh, Peter Brex on the left, uh, that's from a dream sequence where he's, uh, he's snorting vast amounts of cocaine. He plays the evil boss of the city, boss, Ross Glimmer, the boss. Uh, next to him is the sort of the, actually the real hero of the piece, who's uh, this amnesiac goaltender from a team called the Ving, or the Terminal City Ricochets. Uh, that, that was played by a guy named, oh, what's, what's his name? Were he's you a, forced to write hockey in the movie since it was shot in Canada? No, actually there was hockey all through the movie. In fact, there's less, ho there's less hockey in the final movie than we wrote in because, because in fact, every character in the original movie had a name, the, their last name was a famous NHLer, and, and lawyers told us we couldn't do that, so, so it, it got a bit removed. Moved. But the goaltending thing got a little bit stronger into it. And uh, anyway, so that's the guy that he's—he's a, he's a French Canadian. He's a guy with a—with I think it's the best performance in the movie, to be honest. He's—he's because he—he's a guy that never remembers quite what he did five seconds ago, and he actually kind of makes it believable. And then there's a shot of Gene Kaniski, who's uh, we talked about already, the one of the world's great wrestlers. And then—and then one of my favorites is the little boy who's had the top of his head cut off, and there's electrodes jammed into his exposed brain, and and they're essentially remote controlling him. And that was your idea. Well, that, yeah, that, that was my. It, it, someone had this idea about thought control of children, and I said, you know, and I'd been watching. Yeah, there, there's a lot of good, good horror films in the, you know, sort of gross, grotesque horror films in the 1980s. And I said, well, why don't we just like lop the top of the kid's head off and show the brain and show them jamming stuff into it? So, so that was that. That's actually the director's son there. I can't remember the kid's name. And then there's a moment with uh, the, the sort of other hero, Alex, getting beaten up by Joe from DOA and Gene Kaniski. And last but they played th cops, which is they, amazing. Yeah. Joe played a cop. They, yeah, and he was good. He was good. There was, uh, they were, you know, a little bit sort of keystone cops, meet actual wrestlers because they were mean guys. And then the last one is another shot of Alex uh, with guns in his hands and TV sets in the background because, you know, you, you cannot have uh, anything advertising a movie that has men in it that doesn't have a gun because, you know, guns are, of course, representative of uh, something or other. Um, what was the reception of the movie? How was it received? Where did it play? It got a release in, like, you know, actual a theatrical release in Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto, I'm pretty sure. I think also San Francisco. It ran in a couple of festivals.
It was on um, Super Channel in the States or something? Jello was, on, was telling a yeah, story about that? Yeah, it was on Channel that? in the States. I don't know if it was the same one in Canada. It also ran in Canada, and various VHS tapes got made and passed around. I actually passed a VHS tape around to various people, and, and my version's actually, it's, it's the writer's edit. Mine's actually shorter than the, than the movie that got released because there's a couple of really bad scenes in it, so I just took them out, you know, as, uh, as is my want. Um, who knows where, where those ones are? It, and I haven't double-checked to see whether one of the ones I gave out is the one that ended up on YouTube because it is on YouTube. How about the critical reception? How was that? It was hated by uh, the guy that wrote for The Globe. Liam uh, Lacey? Yeah, he really tore into it. Uh, it got a really good review locally from, um, what's his name? Guy, the guy that still writes for The Straight. Uh, I, I, I thought he really got it. You know, he was, um, actually, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think Liam Lacey hated it. I think he was in the middle, but there was someone in Toronto that hated it. It might have been the guy that wrote for the Toronto Star. But uh, the guy from the, from the Georgia Strait, he, he really understood that, you know, that this movie was not trying to, you know, it wasn't trying to win an Academy Award. It was, it was, it was an eruption of, of passion and ideas and it was slapped together, kind of, kind of like many people's favorite punk, punk rock records. So it, it, it had that feel. And that, and that was very deliberate from certain people. That, that was definitely the Ken Lester aesthetic, was just, you know, let's just throw all the shit we can up against the wall and we'll see what sticks. And it had a great soundtrack, too, which, when you get the DVD, comes with the soundtrack. You get the entire soundtrack. And, and I guess that's... A, uh, there's one track here that actually originated right here at CITR Radio. It's the last track on the album. It's basically... I, I was hanging out one evening with Don Chow, who was a DJ at the time, and, and, and Don had connections with uh, the guys in Tackhead, Keith LeBlanc, some, some, some of the big beat makers that were uh, driving a lot of the cool underground music at the time in New York and in London. And he said, someone should take uh, some of this Jello by Afro spoken word stuff and jam it together with some of these beats. And so I just kind of, while Don was doing his radio show, I kind of wandered across the hall and laid and took a track off of the Keith Le- Le- LeBlanc album called uh, Ob- Object Subject. And you invented the mashup. And I laid down uh, the opening rant from Jello's uh, current record, which was called Message from Our Sponsor. And it actually runs over the closing credits of the movie. It's. Uh, it's a bit of a dynamite piece, I think. It's it's uh, now the version here is not the one I put together, and and I always maintain mine mine was better because it had all kinds of vinyl hisses and cracks, and I think I think someone even wandered in the middle and, and did a bit of scratching, whereas this is much more just straight up. But uh. and that's what we're going to end this interview with. Bill Mullen from Terminal City Ricochet with, and coming up right after that, a brand new interview with Jello by Afra. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all, Bill? What was your next project after Terminal City Ricochet? Was it the Gulf War movie that you worked on? Well, that, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I maintain that, I, that I, I'm still working on my next project and that I haven't, you know, I haven't had a, a feature film produced since then, other, other than a few things I've thrown together myself that are kind of underground. I seem to recall uh, uh, directing a few uh, Evaporators videos. Um, and, uh, yeah, still out there, still... still uh, the thing about life is you go along, you know, it just, it's, the best thing that happens to you are, are all the things that, that you fail at because, because you just end up where you are. I mean, like if I'd succeeded at everything, I'm, I'd, I'd be dead by now. Cocaine overdoses or just crazy shit like that, whereas... Uh, Did you get any offers, though, after Terminal City Ricochet came out? It was weird because I didn't want to work, I, I didn't want to work with the team anymore. You know, I had my feelings hurt. And I wanted to travel and have a life. So I just kind of disappeared for a while. And, and next thing I knew, I was, uh, you know, and, and times change. Suddenly, uh, that, that's a long story, you know. That's, that'll be the next movie. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all, Bill Mullen? 
Uh, what is it? We say keep on rocking in the free world. Or why should day. people care about Terminal City Ricochet, a movie you wrote all these years ago, Bill Mullen? Because weirdly enough, no one's ever hated this movie more than me. There, there was times where I, it, it just seemed to be totally not worth the trouble. But after taking about, you know, literally 20 years off of it and catching a chunk of it the other night, it's actually pretty good. It's actually, you know, it, 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 it delivers something that, that nothing else on the historical record delivers to the culture, which is just this unique thing that could only have come out of Vancouver. So, you know, for all our ineptness and uh, disillusioned ambition, uh, it was worth doing. And I got to thank you again because it created a monster, my jello interviews. In other words, I really mean a monster. 89, 91, 95, 2000, 2002, 2004, 2005, 2005, 2006, 2010 coming up right now. All interviews I did with Jello Baffer because I met him through Terminal City Ricochet. And I have to say, I said this the other night, John, where is the movie My, my Breakfast with Jello? Or maybe brunch. We're brunch. working on my that. my brunch with Jello. We're working on that. So right now, a message from our sponsor coming up. Yeah, and, and, and you know, tip of the hat to, to Don Chow. It was his, it was his initial idea. Uh, I think he's in Pittsburgh now, Detroit, Hong Kong, and then Tokyo, right after, And then right after that, a brand new interview with Jello Bafra. Well, thanks so much, Bill. Keep on rocking in the free world, and do-do-do-do-do. Do-do. We interrupt this program with a special bulletin. This territory is now under martial law. All constitutional rights have been suspended. Stay in your homes. Do not attempt to contact loved ones, insurance agents, or attorneys. Shut up. Do not attempt to think, or depression may occur. Stay in your homes. Curfew is at 7 p.m. sharp after work. Officer will be by to collect urine samples in the morning.
you? I am Jello Biafra. Jello Biafra, welcome to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Haven't you said that to me before? Well, actually, that's what I was going to say. I've been interviewing you since 1989, Jello. Wowie zowie. When you were here doing Terminal City Ricochet. That is when we first met, isn't it? 1989 till now, I've been doing interviews with you, Jello. That's like 21 years worth of interviews. Oh, but I have more sentimental feelings about the second interview when I knew what you were going to do for me and drew all over your face with a magic marker, not knowing you still lived with your parents and they didn't know you were Nardwar and you had my little instant tattoos for weeks. Yes, I had to wash all the marker off with this terrible soap and I got a terrible rash. <laughs> Is that where that song came from? Yes. Indeed, I got a rash by the evaporators. Give me some ointment. I need a... I don't remember. I need an appointment. Oh, there you go. And now, you're not... Does that mean all your fans here think I gave you herpes? Um, no, but you gave me a lot of knowledge, Jello. And I'd like to ask you right off the bat, you've been talking a lot about this person right here, Henrietta Lacks. What can you tell the people Henrietta Lacks? Well, Henrietta Lacks is the subject of a newer song by my band, the Guantanamo School of Medicine, which is going to come out on our EP early next year, uh, which is called Enhanced Methods of Questioning. We played it as the first encore song at the Vancouver show, and she's basically... Uh, 
African-American woman from Baltimore who was a cervical cancer victim in the early 1950s, but uh, it was very exotic, weird cervical cancer that they'd never seen before, and Johns Hopkins was treating her. She was very poor, so it never occurred to them to ask her first about saving her cells or anything. And so they took all these cells out of her. She died shortly thereafter, and they loved them because uh, most human tissue cells can't grow outside the human body, these did. The problem being that they grew and grew and grew and grew and started turning up in other people's labs, other people's experiments, spoiling all this stuff, and then the scientists wouldn't admit they were wrong, and they wouldn't admit that Henrietta Lacks had struck again. A lot of good stuff came out of it, too. Apparently, even penicillin was tested on this. And so the, 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 the issue from, for the book is that uh, Henrietta Lacks's relatives and descendants have never really been compensated for what has now were made Hopkins billions of dollars. And some of them aren't that happy about that, of course. And uh, But I didn't know that part at the time. I had merely, mainly heard about these voracious cells contaminating experiments. And after reading the book, decided to stick with that part of the story because the contamination is still going on and causing millions of dollars of damage and laboratories and biotech labs every year, so uh, it stands. Jello, a little while back you played a gig with Tool at the Bill Graham Civic? Yep. And you were opening for Tool, not headlining of course, although you have members of Tool in your band sometimes. Oh well, one member for a few shows and on uh, two of my albums, the ones I did with the Melvins, uh, Adam Jones, who's a close friend of Buzz from the Melvins, started just hanging out at practice and decided he wanted to jump in, so he's on about half the stuff I on uh, the two albums I did with the Melvins, Never Breathe which you can't see, and Sieg Howdy, and we got to do some live shows with both him and Buzz on guitar, so Phil Spector, eat your heart out as far as wall of sound goes. What have you learned about Tool fans, Jello? Because I heard when you were opening for Tool, they weren't too susceptible to understanding politics. It depended on the fan, basically. Um, it, 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 it was a situation I'd never been in with Dead Kennedys ever, and we went through this when we played with Faith No More, too. It's like, hi, we're the opening band. Nobody cares about us. Hope you like our shit and stuff. And, you know, with Dead Kennedys, it was a smaller room. You just shock everybody if you're opening for somebody else. But it doesn't work that way here, but it went all right with Faith No More, and in, in San Francisco, about half the Tool fans really liked us, and the other half really didn't, which means at least we got through. And then the weirder one was in Sacramento, where we were in the basketball arena of all places, and the parking was going so slowly through the gates that I fear a lot of people stuck in that traffic jam even missed part of Tool. But... I mean, we went on, it's pitch dark in the room, you see some of the seats, they were making everybody sit down at that show, and it was like, okay, when I'm 70 years old and stuck on the casino circuit somewhere in the deep south, this will be my life. Hey, I see a couple about 10 rows back there. Oh, I see another person about 15 rows back there. But the cheers grew louder as time went on, so uh, it was more overwhelmingly positive, but it was uh, weirdly scattered where people were as they arrived into the show. I love the way you introduce politics, so Jello Biafra. For instance, I went to your website, the Alternative Tennis website and I found out I could buy an Obama dildo. 
Yeah, somebody solicited us on those, so I said, okay, why not? What do you think about stuff like that? For instance, Jello, may I offer up this? Sarah Palin embarrassments. <laughs> What's that gonna do? Give me like right-wing Tea Party murderer breath or something? Here, this is what a decomposed moose smells like in Sarah's garage. <laughs> What do you think about stuff like that, though? Like, political stuff like that. Embarrassment. Sarah Palin embarrassment. Wasn't it you or was it Jimmy Twilight over in Victoria who gave me the pop-up Bin Laden game? I think that probably would have been Jimmy. Yeah. What about yourself, though, Jello? Have you been approached by Jello ever to make, like, an anarchy-flavored Jello? <laughs> Thankfully, only you have thought of that because they haven't even gotten around to suing me, thankfully. They sued Green Jello pretty quick after they got known. Maybe the hyphen was in there. I don't know. I never used the hyphen because I didn't realize it was there because I don't really like eating Jello. I never really liked it very much. You know, I like junk food, but it better be good. If I'm going to wreck my body like that. But no, I, I think the one the, that I'd really like to do someday, though, if they have one of these celebrity micro-brews, I want to make Jonestown Ale and dye it purple. And you have a Jones in your band sometime, too, so that's cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Adam's made noises about wanting to do some more stuff, but it's kind of like what's become of the great lost third lard album that still doesn't exist is... Uh, the things have reversed now. Instead of Al and Ministry having the schedule I do with Gitmo School of Meds, and uh, yeah, I, I, and, and Adam's got his stuff. I've got his stuff. We'll see what happens. Yellow, what do you think about rock and rollers and the Tea Party? Like Mo Tucker, you love the Velvet Underground, and she's been tea partying. A lot of Tea Party people are angry and frightened of the same things we are: losing their homes, losing their jobs, not knowing what's going to happen to their kids if they have any. It's just that there's been such a relentless corporate media campaign, and not just Fox News, but CNN, you know, one of the wannabe Fox Newses, has, has just started hyping the Tea Party, even though the party at the time had no members. It was all oil barons who put it together. It's kind of a Wizard of Oz thing, and now, sure, there are real shock troops and angry people who might have voted for George George Wallace in 68 and Jesse Jackson in 88 and Ross Perot in 92, some of whom are the same people. But I think Michael Moore is right when he says that a lot of us are upset and concerned about the same things, but people are just getting really badly misled. And it's especially relentless with the Tea Party because there's so many people so angry and hurting so bad that they're worried that there might be an uprising on the scale of the early 30s. My dad, who grew up during the Depression and his White, the historian, is convinced that the reason Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, kicked down the New Deal and all those decent reforms and stuff was he, almost alone among the wealthy class of the day, realized so many people were so upset and so destitute that there was going to be a revolution otherwise, and they were going down. And this is where the American people, who the ones who voted for change and hope and all that, failed Obama completely. Where were they in the streets when we needed to get the public option and the health care bill? Where are they now? They just handed the media platform to these Tea Party bozos, and now that's the official outlet. No, 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 people. We know you're angry. Whatever you do, don't attack Wall Street. Don't attack the banks. They're your friends. No. 
No. Pick on the Mexicans. Pick on the Muslims. Obama's born in Africa and he's a closet Muslim. Go with that one for a while and stuff like that. Jello, I recently actually talked to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm sorry. And I asked him about this record right here. In fact, I brought it out and showed it to him. The total body workout record. Are you the one who gave me one of those too, or was that somebody else? I have one of these somewhere. So I showed it to Arnold. Oh, look at that soft core gay porn. We'll turn it over. It's even more exciting, actually, Jello. Look at the back there. Oh, yeah. So I asked Arnold about this, and he said, I live a multifaceted life. Yes, he's really swift, isn't he? Yeah, no, he's, he's a very, very smart guy, and all I can say is beware of Austrians who want to rule the world. How could have I approached talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger with that record in my hand? How do you talk to these people, Jello? Well, I would have been ready to play him our, the Arnold Schwarzenegger version of California Uber Alice that's on uh, Sig Howdy. We do that in the set with Guantanamo School of Medicine, too, but I don't know what's going to happen after November with that one. Jello, who was the first band to say fuck on a record? Was that the Fugs? Um, it might have been the Four Coins in the 50s. A friend of mine who's a novelty collector and deals in a lot of rare 50s and 60s stuff, um, I think that's the word. That's it's also Eddie Duchin, Old Man Moses. Could be. That's like from 1938. But do you think the Fugs were the first to say fuck? No, as I say, four coins, or maybe uh, the you know you listen carefully to the early pressings of uh, "Socket to Me, Baby" by Mitch Ryder, and it's pretty clearly um, you know, honey in a beehive, horn horn, honey bunch. Every time you with me, feels like a fuck. And or not punch, but fuck. <laughs> or question mark and mysterians, girl, you captivate me, girl, you masturbate me. Oh, I don't, I hadn't heard about that one. That's a different word, though. That's the one that the Republican candidate for the Senate in Delaware, a Tea Party person, of course, um, she wants to end masturbation, but she hasn't been involved in witchcraft since high school. In a way, I'm hoping some of those people win just because they're going to be so entertaining. But then again, when people start falling for them, taking them seriously or whatever, you do get your uh, Stockwell days and Stephen Harper's and Sarah Palin's and Palin is uh, unfortunately proving my worst fears right. People dismissed her as being over after 2008. I said no, no, no. She's really telegenic. She's relatively young. She could kill the planet any time in the next 30 years. You know, she's a teleprompter savant like Reagan or George W. Bush. She doesn't have to know anything. The Carl Roves and Dick Cheney's and William Crystal's around her will do that for her. The danger of people like that, and Harper for that matter, with his full speed ahead on the oil sands in Alberta, an issue Americans are completely unaware of, by the way, is that, like James Watt when he was Reagan's interior secretary who's open about this, they want to rape the earth. They want the planet destroyed. Every tree cut, every mine strip mine, get all the oil out, nuke the places that people that are different from us, because then and only then do we get the rapture and the Messiah comes back. Jello, you can put down the Schwarzenegger record because you already have that one. Because I wanted to ask you here about this particular poster from a gig you did in Vancouver way back when that kind of ties into last night. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that show. Here we have the Dead Kennedys with the Subhumans on... November 22nd. How many 
gigs did you play on JFK Death Day? And was it scary playing on JFK Death Day? Well, not in Canada. <laughs> Subhumans were so good that night, they blew us off the stage with Iggy in the room, no less. But uh, it was a good gig had by all. And uh, the, the, the previous time, though, we inadvertently were booked at Mabuhay Gardens on that date. And then Dirksen thought he'd make more money by uh, switching us out because Wes Robinson, another promoter, needed a venue for Sunra. And then the San Francisco Chronicle's venerable columnist Herb Kane ran a blurb complaining about us playing on November 22nd, and Dirk Dirksen realized, oh my God, I've got a media angle now. I can play with this. And so back on the bill we went, and we wound up being double-billed with Sunra. Which is totally amazing, but it's also amazing to be with the Subhumans, who you played with last night. And I noticed also earlier in the year, you played with the Subhumans UK. So are you the first band ever to play with the Subhumans Canada and Subhumans UK in the same year? Um, I'm not... Dead Kennedy's played with both bands, but not in the same year. We played with Citizen Fish, but not the UK Subhumans yet. You also played, I think, with GBH. What was that like? Uh, that was a pleasant surprise. I had heard rumors that they were a lot better live than most bands from that period who just did, you know, wimped-out retro shows and stuff. And sure enough, they do have a new album out that's pretty good that Hellcat put out, and they, they brought it. It was, it was a good one-two punch for the crowd that night, and uh, I think everybody in our band really liked their band, and I guess it meant a lot to them just to be able to do something with me. Do you remember getting snuck into a Bob Marley gig by the manager of the Subhumans, David Spanner? That's interesting, because I thought I went with Ken Lester, the, uh, the manager of DOA, but maybe Spanner snuck both of us in. Yeah, that was the only time I ever saw Bob Marley. It was in Vancouver, BC, Canada, too. It was a, what, what, the PNC Pavilion or something like that? I think so, or it might have been Carisdale Arena. It was an interesting place, like you snuck in the back door, they opened the back door and you ran in? I don't think it was anything that glamorous. I think we went in a side door and we might have even had passes. I don't remember. And Jill, winding up here, I asked you once before about this particular gig that happened at the Longshoreman's Hall with DOA. Well, you've already asked me about it, so why are you asking me about it again? Well, I have a follow-up to it. You had said it was something to do with, because I didn't quite understand, East Bay Ray's girlfriend or friend at the time was tipped off by the police that something was going to happen that night? The police were intentionally going to cause something? Oh, that's typical LAPD. Yeah, it was a gang rumble involving dozens, if not hundreds, of cops acting like fucking stormtroopers. No, it was a woman he knew who worked in an emergency room in an area hospital who told him later that a sheriff's officer had been down there that afternoon saying, have uh, extra people on hand in the ER tonight, there's going to be casualties. Yes, that part. I remember Ray telling me that at the time. Jello, did you ever meet Sid Vicious? Because I heard you met Sid Vicious in the hospital with Darby Crash of San Francisco General. Good God, what kind of a weird rumor is that? I No, I've never met Sid Vicious. He was, he was long gone before I was ever in San Francisco. And how about Johnny Rotten? You've met him twice, haven't you? Uh, once with uh, Bob Mould's dressing room in uh, San Francisco. Because he said that he met you backstage in San Francisco and also another time. Yes, I interviewed Johnny Rotten finally, and I asked about Jello Biafra. And what did he say? This is what Johnny Rotten said about Jello Biafra. Have you met Jello from the Dead Kennedys at all? Mm. Yes, I have. 
I met him backstage at San Francisco once. I met him also another time uh, doing an interview at uh, uh, Boston with uh, a DJ then at the time. His name was Oedipus. Um, and both times I thought he talked too much and over-intellectualized everything, and it seemed kind of humorless. And whatever his personal agenda was, I thought it was too predominant for me. There, there was no, you know, give it a break, you know, lay off the showbiz and just be a human. He's too busy selling himself, deliberately trying to be outrageous, which is always nauseating. Well, he's done quite a bit of music, and he's still doing it. So at least yeah, he's still he'd doing it. Yeah, and he's better off letting that talk for him, because it, it, it can be stifling a conversation with him. <laughs> well, now I'll say it. Leiden reminded me of my grandmother. We've never met. We've never met. So what's it like being on all those chat shows anyway? Which, of course, was a political question because it meant he knew I'd gone up against Tipper Gore on Oprah and all that stuff. So, of course, the discussion got political. Angelo, rock and roll, the Count Bishops. Did you see them in 1976 in England? Who were they? What can you tell people about the Count Bishops? And 76 is pretty early for a Jello trip to Europe. <laughs> it was 77, dude. And uh, yeah, I saw them at a place called the Rock Garden. And uh, they were, the, the, anything that was kind of, kind of new wave and punk, they were interchangeable terms at the time, was kind of an event in a remote place like Colorado. And one of the first people to get their stuff imported was the Count bishops because they were on the Chiswick label and now they'd be viewed as more of a pub rock band the train train single being their finest hour so it was a real treat to hear them play that that night it was a rock and roll show there weren't that many people there so it was a dance floor and I danced away Jello, I was referring earlier to that poster that's now on the floor. On the poster is the Young Canadians. When you first came to Vancouver with the Dead Kennedys, I saw a videotape of that. A videotape of that actually survives. Of what? Of you playing with the Dead Kennedys at the Vancouver East Cultural Center. I've heard rumors of this footage. Yeah, they were called the K-Tales then. And I think, were you backing them up or were you headlining? Um, I think we headlined, I can't remember. Because in the videotape, it looks like the people aren't really into you, and you're like rolling on the floor, fighting people. People were really into the Young Canadians, or the k -tales. They almost had like a better response than you guys. That can happen. Do you remember that happening with Vancouver bands coming up here to the Vancouver bands kicking some ass like that? Um, well, that su subhumans that night were absolutely amazing. And any, any situation like that, uh, the band, or at least me, we either, we either really rise to the occasion and play a really great show, or we suck. And with DOA, it went both ways, depending on the night. In the particular show I'm talking about, the Vancouver East Cultural Center, you're sitting on the side of the stage going, okay, we'll play Chopsticks now. Because <laughs> it was a problem, something to do with the PA. It might also have been because that show was like late afternoon, early evening, I'd gotten practically no sleep and was barely awake. Lastly, Jello Biafra, thanks for speaking to me, Nardwarda Human Serviette. What do you think about the Sears Tower now being renamed the... I don't know. It's called the Willis Tower in Chicago. Wow. That, I, I, I can just hope it was named after the right Willis. <laughs> I mean, another time I thought of Wesley was when Obama 
there was all that euphoria when he actually won the election and came out in the park in Chicago to uh, do his little uh, victory speech. And it occurred to me, you know, I wonder what Martin Luther King would think of this. And the very next person who popped into my head, wow, what would this mean to Wesley? And then, of course, I knew what it would mean to Wesley. He would have been in that crowd about half a mile back, but you'd hear him clear as a bell on all the TV cameras. He's going to whip up you's ass. We have a black president, Barack Obama. He will rock Saddam Hussein's ass to Russia. That would have been great. The unreleased Obama track by Wesley Willis. Thank you so much, Yellow Biafra. Well, yeah, everybody can make their own Wesley songs now, so that would be a good one, yeah. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all, Jello Biafra? Well, good luck surviving this man, but he'd make a better dictator than Sarah Palin, because then you can keep on rocking in the allegedly free world. Well, thanks so much, Jello. Keep on rocking in the allegedly free world, and do do the loot do. Tweet, tweet. taken. Shoppers! 
so fine.